Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. All that being said, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Re-Encounters. I'm Sam. Hello from me. I'm Boris. Fancy seeing you here, Sam. Mm. Wasn't quite expecting it. I mean, there have been points where I didn't expect that this would happen at all, but this is our first proper episode and it really is such a good feeling to be recording this. Woohoo! <laughs> and both our faces are on the logo, so, you know, it will be false advertising for us to not both be here. Yeah. <laughs> now, back to the podcast at hand. Yeah. Reencounters is, as you may have understood and heard, our podcast, where we review all things film, music, literature, art, and other aspects of popular culture, but with a twist. You see, I've often been surprised in the time that I've known Boris how many pieces of media I take for granted that he hasn't actually seen or doesn't know very much about. So the idea is to be constantly introducing and indeed reintroducing bits of culture to each other and to those of you listening as well. And occasionally, we might even review something neither of us has seen or listened to yet. The podcasting world is our oyster, after all. You can listen to our first introductory episode where we go more into the background and reasoning behind this podcast. But as for the here and now, today's podcast is centering on a film. As far as I'm concerned, it's a film that helped to define the 1990s, which indeed was a decade that both of us weren't around for most of. Well, we were both born in the 1990s, yes, we... however, we were both born after 1995. Yes, that's true. That's what it was. So therefore, we, we weren't around for most of it. Mm. I, I was 97, you were 96. Precisely. So you might have a few months on me, but... Um... Well, a few months, but also a big difference as to where we're actually born and where we actually grew up. <laughs> this is distracting from telling people what the film is. Um, Go on. But yes, the film is, and congratulations to those of you who guessed, Groundhog Day, um, which we thought was appropriate um, in lots of different ways to be the first film that we reviewed. I, I think it's it's one of those films which really gets to the heart of what this is about, because when I heard that Boris hadn't actually seen it, I, I, I sort of went into shock. You did your usual thing. Yeah, my usual thing of the eyebrow going up and going, <gasps> what do you mean you haven't seen that? More on that in our introductory episode. <laughs> Way to plug. But yes, Groundhog Day, um, a film that, as I say, I think helped to define the 90s. It was written partly to become a holiday, a holiday favourite in the same vein as It's a Wonderful Life and films like that. Um, but hmm. for a holiday that even in America, uh, where, where it's, you know, the Groundhog Day is actually a holiday on February the 2nd, people do celebrate it, but not many people. The original writer, Danny Rubin, kind of suggested that it was going to be something that people would watch every year. And I know for a fact that lots of people all over the world watch it every year, but not necessarily in February. <laughs> yes, but 
because it has such a strict geographical point in America and also such a strict calendar point of the 2nd of February, I believe that it did become a Tumblr darling in the same way that Mean Girls became a Tumblr darling with April 23rd. I get that. This year is, of course, the 30th anniversary. We're in 2023. Um, so that's even more reason to watch it. Yeah, even, even more, more reason. reason for me to experience it. <laughs> Finally. But I think over the past 30 years, it's gone through so many different phases because um, it was it was popular when it first came out. But it kind of went through a little bit of a cult phase as well as being very, very culturally important. I mean, everyone knows nowadays that Groundhog Day is not as much referring to the whole thing of the groundhog coming out of the ground and saying whether it's going to be however many more months of winter or mm -hmm, not. Mm -hmm. um, it's this thing of the time loop, which of course is the main gimmick of the story of the film Groundhog Day. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the way I first came across this term, not via the film, but rather via the meaning it has acquired in the cultural common sense. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why I probably believe that I didn't really need to watch the film simply because, oh, I knew what it meant. And I just didn't really need to know the source material, hmm. so to speak. Plus, I don't think I'd experienced anything that much with Bill Murray up to a certain point in my life. I think, in my mind, he had always been overshadowed by the likes of Steve Martin mm -hmm. and films such as Cheaper by the Dozen or Father of the Bride, which are not screwball comedies, but more generic family comedies in comparison to Groundhog Day. It's interesting that you bring up Steve Martin, because I think you could say that Steve Martin and Bill Murray, their careers mirror each other. Hmm. Um, and they're both kind of zany comic actors and artists. Possibly one of them is a bit more family-friendly than the other? Yeah, I, th I think that's possibly a way of looking at it. But I think they both were defined by a certain zaniness, which is a word that, mm. from my side at least, you're going to hear a lot of in <laughs> this episode. But they were both defined by a kind of zaniness in the 1980s that translated a little bit into the 1990s, but then it changed rather a lot in, in the following decade. So it's it's interesting that you bring up Steve Martin because I think he's he's an important figure to compare Bill Murray's career to. But Murray himself is very much zany and remains so um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for various reasons. And I believe it's very important to have those two people named, have those two actors and comedians, firstly and foremostly, comedians mm -hmm. named because I believe Bill Murray came up through Saturday Night Live did. and uh, through his co-work with people such as Chevy Chase mm -hmm. and other comedians of that time in order to gain sort of more critical acclaim within films, mainly as a comedic lead. But I guess in Groundhog Day, that comedic lead is a bit spun on its head. I think that's one of the things that we're going to talk about a bit later. I think mm. that for Bill Murray... And indeed for Andy McDowell, it was a little bit of a, a star vehicle, um, but at least for Bill Murray, it was to change the trajectory of his career, because mm -hmm. I think that he wanted to, to change up what his career was. And I think that it kind of worked, but at the same time, kind of didn't. Uh, but yeah, we'll get into that. Definitely. But I think what could be very interesting from the standpoint of someone who has not experienced this film before, to share my expectations going into the film and what I thought or believed would happen, how I thought I would feel or what would occur in the film. So what I thought about before I actually started watching Roundhog Day was there was going to be 
a comedic film because of Bill Murray, because of what I have gathered passively through osmosis or through knowledge from you, Sam, mm -hmm. about him and about his roles. So I kind of drew a comparison uh, between Groundhog Day and Mrs. Doubtfire in my brain, mm -hmm. a sort of a family feeling to the film, but maybe not a prerequisite. Overall, a nice feel-good film to watch. That was the general vibe I got from the poster and from the plot. And because of the phrase itself, Groundhog Day being so embedded into the cultural consciousness of the language and through media, I also drew a comparison to, and do correct me on this, The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. Because from what I know about The Truman Show, another film which I haven't seen, is simply... Shocker. <laughs> guys, everyone and anyone in between, guys and gals, <laughs> yes, this is going to be a recurring thing. <laughs> Send us emails. Guess how exactly what film Boris hasn't and has seen. <laughs> and you can do the same for Sam. Exactly. I do mean, the same for Sam, but with him, it's films he has seen. Well, yeah, although I imagine there are quite a few that I haven't seen that people would be surprised. I do claim <laughs> to be a bit more knowledgeable about films than you are, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are still things that people would be like, my God, Sam, how dare you not have seen that? Well, we both remain to be surprised, whether by each other or by other people. Yeah, true, 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 true. So, yeah, I guess I drew a comparison between Mrs. Doubtfire and Groundhog Day, as well as Groundhog Day and The Truman Show, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. I also expected the references to be a little bit dated and to be a little bit more 80s and 90s based, and mm -hmm. I didn't expect the sensibilities in the film to reflect current sensibilities, and I think we will get into that, yeah. especially with the female roles and the female characters in this film. Yeah. Because as fabulous as Andy McDowell is in this film, I believe she is completely underutilized. Okay, yeah. And something else I did note down, and I didn't realize how true this would be, was the fact that the music would be instantly recognizable from this film. <laughs> Up until this point, I don't think I'd heard of the Pennsylvania polka. Yeah. And <laughs> I think I'm going to spoil this a little bit now, but the first time I actually heard that song within the film, it sounded as if they were singing, it's the brand new polka. Oh, God. And not, it's the Pennsylvania polka. This is where my OCD tendencies start to come out, because... Boris has been saying that, and I've been like, no, no, it's Pennsylvania. It's clearly Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, then again, I've, I've seen the film a number of times now, so I suppose I'm used to it. <laughs> um, I guess that some of my expectations for Boris seeing the film, because I've seen it quite a few times, as I say, I'll, I'll share my expectations of what I thought he would think. I thought he would be surprised by how dark the tone got at certain points within Groundhog Day, mm -hmm. I thought he would be surprised by the characterization being quite non-comedic at points, um, and the tone. There are, there are points in the film where I think people feel quite uncomfortable, and I think that those bits, I was expecting those to surprise him. Um, linking to what you said about things possibly being a bit dated, maybe some attitudes in the film I think you'd find a bit dated, but also I thought that you would be surprised by the general kind of timeless feel mm. of the film, more than just with regard to the time loop itself, but with regard to the setting and the feel 
and the fact that yes this is set in a, in what we assume is the modern day of the 90s but that it could also be any time before that or a little bit afterwards um completely and i do believe that all of those predictions that you had did come true at some points mm. and the dark or more philosophical existential tones to the film really made an impression on me and i wasn't really expecting them to happen that way or to be presented via the character of bill murray and his transformation of sorts let's mm -hmm. say because he does go on a transformation journey yeah. and we will get into that a little bit more later down in this podcast line yes and yeah the setting as well and the tropes maybe that were deployed in this film from the 80s and 90s really made an impression on me definitely mm -hmm. nothing ever exists in isolation so i think a lot of the Precisely. tropes that are within there are still hangovers from the 80s mm -hmm. um and i think that that's that's really something quite interesting picking up on some of the stuff you said expectation wise particularly with regard to the truman show uh the truman show is a film that i think although it's billed a little bit as a comedy and obviously it's got jim carrey in the main role so you would assume that it's at least slightly comedic and it is but I think it's on the same kind of uh, trajectory as uh, Groundhog Day. Hmm. Yeah, we're talking about Groundhog Day. Hmm. And first of all, um, it, it's, it's a good idea, I think, to, as well as talk about expectations, to describe after watching the film, in five words, how you found it. Yeah, this is something which could challenge us to find the right language to maybe summarize the film, summarize our feelings about it, and therefore would also pose a nice challenge for all of you listeners mm -hmm. who want to follow us on our journey and also maybe, if you've seen the film already, try to summarize it yourself within five words or fewer. Yeah. Actually, yeah, do let us know what you come up with, whether that be on Instagram or on our emails or as any sort of comments on our posts. Yes. Mm -hmm. So my five words actually for Groundhog Day are... Murakami and Marquez made Hollywood. <laughs> Which is a little bit pretentious, maybe, with the literary references, but I believe the magical realism elements I mean... to those authors make a really good reference point and actually create a good comparison to the philosophical and slightly unexplained supernatural reasons as to why Phil remains uh, stuck in... Punxsutawney. Yeah, okay, maybe that is a little bit pretentious, but we're making a culture podcast. If we can't be bloody pretentious on, on a culture podcast, um, when can we be pretentious? And especially seeing as these are, you know, authors who I've read works by and you've seen a lot of films. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of trying to come from my own court over to yours. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, my five words, which are based on this particular viewing, I'm, it is a funny film. It really is a yes, funny film. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's it, that needs to be remembered. But funny is not one of the five words that I chose. But yet, I'm just prefacing it. Yet there were moments where just writing out, writing down in my notes, I said, laugh, laugh. <laughs> but that was after I'd actually laughed out loud. So it wasn't the usual LOL moment of texting. I actually did laugh okay. and then wrote it down. Yeah. Well, my, my five words are slightly creepy philosophical structured perfectly which mm -hmm, get, gets mm -hmm, to the root of mm -hmm. main of the main things that i was thinking during this particular viewing okay no i definitely see your points and i understand why all of those words work with this film mm -hmm. simply because they offer a really good mirror into our own society into our own psyche and especially 
into the current millennial and Gen Z psyche, um, even more so post-pandemic, where we're thinking what is actually happening with our control of time if we ever had any. So this funny film allows us to get to the root of some philosophical questions and queries which we may have as humans. Mm, mm, look at you with, with like doing the conclusion much, much earlier in the podcast. <laughs> this is just a conclusion to this section. <laughs> okay. Well, there are more sections, don't yeah, you? Well, there are lots more sections. Don't stop listening now. Please don't. Um, uh... We'll love you forever. Please don't. <laughs> but before we get to our other sections, I think we should maybe take a quick break. What do you say? Sounds good to me. Don't press pause. We'll be back in a groundhog minute. Um, right, seeing as you're the one who's new to this, I suggest you give us a brief little summary of the film. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'll kind of hop in. Yes, please do. And uh, fill in any blanks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, retiring news reporter Phil Connors is disillusioned with his life and disillusioned with the reporting, which uh, he has to do every single year in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, on Groundhog Day, February the 2nd. All, all correct. He's not retiring. He says that he's going to move to a new station or get a better job. Okay, he's not retiring, he's moving, he's jumping ship. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I get why you say retiring, and that's a point I'm going to make later about the age of Bill Murray's mm. character, Phil, in this. I understand, but he's not retiring, he's saying that he's going to move to a different job that he likes more, and that he'll get paid more for. But before he does that, he needs to do a final report from Punxsutawney about Groundhog Day on February the 2nd, mm -hmm. and this time he's joined by bright-eyed reporter weather reporter Andy McDowell playing Rita. <laughs> Another slight correction, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, she is not a reporter herself, she's his producer. Okay. So she, she's his new producer, and you're quite right, she's very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and very optimistic. And they're joined by cameraman, played by Shit Creek Mayor Chris Elliott, <laughs> whose name of the character I have not it's noted down and forgotten. Larry. Larry, Larry the, the cameraman. cameraman. Also, do you think the slight pause between shits will get will make us have to put this as explicit? <laughs> <laughs> I believe the listeners already know if this is explicit or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. True. <laughs> so this ragtag team of Phil, Rita, and Larry the cameraman yes. go to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania yep. to cover Groundhog Day on February the 2nd. But after they've covered it and are on their way back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, yep. Yep. this ragtag trio yep. gets stuck in Pun uh, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania yes. due to a snowstorm. Yes. And Phil wakes up the next day to find himself stuck in a repetitive cycle of February the 2nd. Groundhog Day, mm -hmm. where the same day keeps happening over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. From waking up at 6am to the music of Sonny and Cher, yep. down to going into bed every night, although maybe in different situations with different people, he will still wake up the same way, the yep. same day, on February the 2nd, yep. every morning. Yes. And... We don't know how much time has actually passed, mm -hmm. and Phil tries out different ways to break this cycle, actually escape this. However, there are certain phases within his psyche and within his progression to show that he may be enjoying this or hating this, depending on which point you catch him in, mm -hmm. a bit too much. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I guess this is kind of in signposted throughout the whole film, and with the inclusion of Andy McDowell as Rita, the young-eyed really new and naive producer, 
they do form a relationship, which I find a bit dubious. However, that does seem to be the key, as usual, love seems to be the key to break any sort of curse or to break any sort of unexplained supernatural cycle of repetition. Mm -hmm. So after the relationship between Phil and Rita becomes consolidated after however many days, maybe months, years have passed even, of them reliving the same day over and over, Phil finally wakes up on February the 3rd mm -hmm. and is able to go on with his life. Yep. Together with Rita, as far as we see. Yes, yes. Okay, that was completely right. Um, and yeah, I, th I think I'll just add in a few things that I think that, that you missed out. Um, the storm that traps them in Punxsutawney is one that we see at the beginning of the film mm -hmm. that Phil predicted wouldn't actually hit. Ah, okay. Um, when he was presenting the weather. Okay, so a little uh, bit of... Just before he left for Punxsutawney. Mm -hmm. um, the, the song, that the Sonny and Cher song that's playing is I've Got You, Babe, which you did say. <laughs> um, I don't know whether people will have heard it, but it's a very repetitive song. <laughs> Um, and it's all about love. There are some characters that Phil meets um, in Punxsutawney over and over again, but the most prominent of these is a man named Ned Ryerson, um, who meets him in the street and who claims that he's an old schoolmate of Phil's. Uh, he turns out to be an insurance salesman, um, and Phil leaves again and again and again. But Not always. Well, not not always, it's true, but... He does, it, uh, the first few times he treads in a large puddle, um, which is one of the best moments of the film hmm. uh, to me. He, he, as part of trying to break the cycle, he tries various methods of committing suicide, uh, prominently jumping off of a tower, mm -hmm. um, getting himself run over, dropping a toaster into a bathtub, uh, a bathtub that he's in, Completely. and also kidnapping the groundhog, which is also called Phil, and uh, steals a truck and then jump, uh, not jumps, drives off a cliff and the two of them fall to their deaths and the truck explodes. And that actually just reminded me of another film reference to uh -huh. a film which I haven't seen, but it's uh kind of been made famous, um, Thelma and Louise. Yep, yep, you could say that it's a Thelma and Louise. I mean, I think Thelma and Louise come out very recently with oh, this. Oh, okay. I, I think Thumb and Louise came out in 92. Hmm. Not exactly sure of that. I'm pretty sure people are going to correct me. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was a relatively recent reference, so you might be right. You might be or right. they might even correct me and say, no, there was a film which did this way beforehand. Thumb <laughs> and Louise wasn't the first. So, I mean, yeah. cars going off cliffs is, I don't know, it, it, it's a thing, but Thumb and Louise is probably the most most famous example. He, he, as you said, he uses the loops to find out more about the town and the people mm. there, but he also becomes an expert on the exact timeline of events that happen during the day. Um, he focuses on seducing Rita, but there's a wonderful uh, kind of compilation of all of his attempts through all sorts of different loops failing with her slapping him in the face. And um, he doesn't even try to simply get with only Rita. It's true. He does have a couple of one-night stands with... Um, very prominently with one particular woman in the mm -hmm. town, uh, using the same methods to get with her. Yes. Um, but he, he calls her by Rita's name on the one night stand. Yes. And that's relatively early in the film. So you're already mm. seeing that he's forming a mental attachment with Rita. He realizes that he's falling in love with her after he um, reveals everything to her in one of the loops. 
and then he decides to change his outlook and um, save people, use his knowledge of the timeline of events to save people, and also to learn some new skills, including ice sculpture, playing the piano, learning French. Of course, as Boris said, the thing that breaks the curse, if it is a curse, is true love's kiss, as it were. And although uh, we, we get a little bit of a tease um, in the morning of what we find out is February the 3rd, um, after all the loops have stopped, Phil wakes up and sees that Andy McDowell's character, Rita, is next to him. And he realises, he looks out the window and sees that the blizzard, the snow from the blizzard is still there. And then he they go for a walk and he says that he'd like to move to the town and live there with Rita. And that's kind of the last bit of the film. Yeah, a very weird twist of fate, I guess. Yes. Um, it's very interesting that you mentioned the curse again and actually picked it up. Um, I believe there were some talks between director Howard Ramis and the screenwriter Danny Rubin about including a section where you actually see Phil receiving a curse. Yes, yeah. So the or being yeah, cursed. The story of the film's development is quite an interesting one because the original idea came from this guy Danny Rubin, um, who was inspired to write it because of his thoughts about um, vampirism and mm -hmm. uh, immortality mm. um, and he wrote it it was his kind of advert script and he went around and nobody really liked it until Harold Ramis's agent picked it up and Harold Ramis was brought in to work on the script and, and potentially to direct it but then the, <laughs> the studio asked him to rewrite it um, so th this was a film that actually behind the scenes had a lot of production issues and some of them have become almost legendary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, Dan Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis, I'm, I think their relationship was relatively good at the time. Yes. And there were definitely artistic differences between the two, but I imagine that they were maybe ironed out to a good enough capacity in order to produce this film. And as you say, this landmark piece of culture. Yes, yes, completely. For and the 90s and yeah. beyond. Yeah, and, and indeed beyond. I mean, it, it's, it's relatively recently. Da Danny Rubin... He worked with Tim Minchin mm -hmm. um, yes. in the last decade, I think it was in 2016, to, to write a musical version of Groundhog Day, uh, which actually premiered in London mm -hmm. um, back in 2016. And yeah, it's, it's now a musical. Yeah. Uh, so it's still very much culturally, I mean, it's, it's culturally significant anyway, but the story still has, is being introduced in different ways to new audiences. And that's super exciting. What you said about vampirism is also very interesting because it allows us to actually talk about spirituality in a way, and immortality is another aspect of the film, of general philosophy and general life, which kind of gets um, topicalized within this film. Yes. And I believe that the character of Phil, as someone who experiences the same day over and over and over, at different points within the story, within the film, we see him adopt different personas or different characteristics, so to speak. At one point, you see him assuming a Buddha-like character <laughs> where he is constantly trying to improve himself. However, you also have this belief that if you're witnessing something over and over, you receive all of this knowledge and you know exactly what is happening. You could get a little bit of a God complex mm. where you believe you're in control and you believe you're the ultimate master of a specific area or of a specific aspect of people's existence, or maybe even your own life. Mm. Maybe also in some other ways, 
being so limited by space and time to this one day really hammers home the point that spiritual support is increasingly important mm, yeah in order to remain relatively sane yeah maybe that's a good cue to talk about bill murray mm. because i think bill murray as a presence within the film in terms of what we see on screen but also behind the scenes um he was a big part of how everything how everything came out bill murray is one of those big names that you see in all kinds of different films but back in the 80s um he was a comic actor probably the things that he's he's most known for in terms of his younger career were ghostbusters one and two where he worked with harold ramis ramis was a co-writer on both ghostbusters films and also played egon in both films they both worked on the ghostbusters films and they'd worked on other films before that as well caddyshacks uh stripes mm-hmm. bill bill murray's after Groundhog Day, later in the 90s, uh, he's particularly famous for Lost in Translation. Ah. Uh, he's famous for other things more recently, but um, including being the voice of Garfield when it had a, a film adaptation. Yes, a in the early 90s yes. at least. Um, but yeah, uh, Lost in Translation is probably one of my favourite films that he's been in. So he was he was very much a, an, established, an established presence before he was in Groundhog Day. And he had a strong relationship with Harold Ramis, who was who was directing the film. Um, but he he wasn't necessarily the first choice of everyone involved. No, and I believe some of the other choices or possible alternative choices to Bill Murray included Michael Keaton mm-hmm. and even Tom Hanks. And now Tom Hanks, yes, while I was watching the film, I also thought about him and thought about, you know, the era you know, some of the other characters he's played. And although I do believe he could have been a good choice, Bill Murray really ekes him out. And Mm. I really really believe Bill Murray encapsulates this sort of jerkishness whilst having the potential to be likable, is likable, and you're actually rooting for him at the end of the day to just improve and to escape this repetitive cycle. The film wouldn't be as optimistic if Phil Connors, as played by Bill Murray, wasn't such a miserable person um, (laughs) in all kinds of ways. Like, Bill Murray plays him as just this cynical piece of shit, really. He's not a nice guy. Oh, absolutely not. Um, And we're definitely not rooting for him at the beginning. No, or even through the middle, because of his... Well, for instance, in my point of view, because of his attitude towards women, because of the way he tries to latch on to women and to actually attain their attention... And I do believe you mentioned the word miserable and you did say son of a bitch, which is almost exactly word for word what Tom Hanks claimed about Bill Murray for this role, saying that he, Bill Murray, is such a miserable son of a bitch on and off screen that this role, the role of Phil Connors, must have been specifically designed for him. Mm. And Tom Hanks, I think, although he said that he regrets, he's regretted it ever since saying no to the part... I don't think that he... I think he would have done a great job. I think Tom Hanks mm-hmm. does a great job in most, if not all, of the roles that he's got. Um, but I think that in this case, Bill Murray just is Phil Connors. I mean, yes. I, I, and, yes. I, you know, I, th- I think that certain changes that were made to the script, because Rubin's original script was even more kind of philosophical and dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
although it was it, it Ruben himself says that like he didn't want uh Phil to be a nasty person a lot of a, there was a lot of darker stuff he was a lot more kind of manipulative even more manipulative towards the female I mean, character yeah, he's still film. mean yeah he's still mean but and yes he uses the the loops to manipulate people to his particularly advantage. women to his advantage yes. but it was apparently even more creepy um, in in the original Rubin version. And mm. like there's some reference to, you know, so at the end, Rita actually bids for Phil in mm-hmm. a charity auction yes. and, and is successful. And there's some suggestion that she kind of owns him, jokingly, at mm. the end of the film. That in the original version, that the roles were reversed. And oh. he actually bid for her and was successful in the charity oh, auction. Oh, how wonderful. What sells it with Bill Murray is just his general depressed cynical attitudes like even when he's happy he's not happy there are no silver linings and i don't think that anyone else could have sold that i'm looking at the names that that you've got steve martin's on there yes there Tom we go Hanks, kevin klein john travolta i don't see any of them mm. having sold it in the way that bill murray did and i think that you know murray he's he's a real diva he was he was mm-hmm. genuinely like getting into properly deep arguments with Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin, and, but Bill Murray's much more British in that his cynicism and his general just like I mean I, I can't really think of the right word, but it's this it's this exhaling, it's this sigh, the fatigue of existence. Yeah, he's he's very fatigued. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I mean. The film is about existence; it's about existing and mm. living. Yeah, almost too much. I mean, and and the fact that it's happening to someone that who who is Bill Murray, you kind of want. And you were right earlier. I mean, he's such a horrible person. You wouldn't think that you'd be rooting for him, but you do, <laughs> and you want him to change, and you want him to get out of this loop. And I remember when you watched it, you did kind of uh, when it came to the end, you were like, "Oh, that's how it gets solved." Uh, okay. N- yes, I think one of the notes I wrote was, oh, please don't let Rita be the key. Something along those but lines. But my, my question would be, what else was going to be the key? Because, you know, her optimism mm-hmm. and the way that Andy McDowell plays it in this kind of very graceful, very... She is optim- wonderful. Yeah, she's very good. She is it. wonderful. The, the way that she plays it is so opposite to what Bill Murray's mood is throughout most of the film. Yes. In terms of the structure of the film, I don't see what else could have been the key. Initially, I thought the puddle, because we do see a lot of scenes with this puddle. (laughs) Yeah. Right That first step, it's a doozy. It's a doozy, that step, says Ned. Says Ned, yeah. That's a great line. I thought that that in itself, maybe something with water or the puddle could be the key. Obviously, it wasn't. And actually changing his attitude towards the people he encounters could be the key. Not necessarily Rita, not necessarily falling in love with Rita, but actually realizing the error of his ways by meeting people randomly and maybe learning more about their lives, trying to change their lives for the better. Well, yeah, I I agree with you, but Mm -hmm. in a way it partly is. I mean, there's nothing that definitely confirms that Rita and the kind of true love's kiss at the end of it is exactly the key, because... Phil's done a heck of a lot of other stuff as well yes. as fall in love with Rita and, and kind of persuade her in the space of just one day from her perspective to fall in love with him. True. Well, he also saves a lot of people because as Phil learns the timeline of the day, he gets this kind of precognition because he knows what's going to happen. So on the final loop, 
he uses all of that information to save a kid from falling out of a tree, yes. save a man from choking. Yes. He Do... also attempts to help and save a homeless person who, yes. sadly, that's one of the darker bits of the film, if not the darkest. Um, he is unable to save someone who actually needs saving. And I thought that would have been the key. I think it partly is the key. Death is all around us. Death is always something to accompany the human existence. But what do you do with the life that you've got? Yes. You do as much as you can. It's possible that it wasn't True Love's Kiss that was the actual okay. key. That Bill Murray has to be congratulated for selling both the asshole and the better Phil at the yes. end of the film. Because I genuinely believe at the end of the film that he has improved. In Groundhog Day, he does kind of a little bit leave the zaniness behind that defined mm -hmm. his career in the 80s. But I think, as with anyone, I mean, you have to be a very special person to move away from what has defined you for, for a certain number of years. Okay. And I think yes. that um, Bill Murray has never really left the zaniness behind, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, his most famous now, in terms of his work now, or now-ish, more recently, for all of the films that he's done with Wes Anderson. Mm. And he still maintains what I would argue is a very similar character to the one that he plays as Phil Connors, which is this kind of, um, kind of out of it, kind of depressed, older man figure who doesn't okay. really find okay. joy in very much. Yeah, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Murray himself has kind of had to step out of the limelight due to some allegations Completely, uh, more yes. recently. Mm -hmm. Murray himself has always been in the news, as I say, for being a difficult person to work with. Behavioural issues. Yeah, but I, 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 I do think that you do have to do this thing sometimes where you separate art from artist. Mm. And Murray does have to be congratulated for doing what I would argue is what a lot of actors do, but particularly well, which is playing a very good, a very... <laughs> accurate version of himself accurately heightened version yes. of oneself yes. maybe and even. he's been doing it ever since groundhog day because i'd argue he's doing exactly the same thing in lost in translation <laughs> <laughs> well it's you know it's interesting that we started this whole rant about bill murray mm. basically praising him but also bringing him down to earth and you know talking about his allegations a little bit yeah. with mentioning alternatives to his um yeah to people who could have played phil connors and i believe something which we want to make a more of a fixture on this podcast is alternative casting in general. Mm. So alternative casting, not only during the time of when the film was actually filmed and released, but also present day mm -hmm. casting for a remake of Groundhog Day, let's say. Yes. I think you're the one who is going on to that in a little bit. Yeah. I want to mention that whilst watching this, uh, the film, I thought how interesting it could have been if there were any characters of color or yeah. if in any way the main characters would have been characters of color mm. and fitting in with the 90s and fitting in with the comedic characters of the time i thought that a possible recast for groundhog day during the 90s could have seen eddie murphy mm. as phil uh playing opposite possibly regina king mm -hmm. who at that time herself would have been just around 30, might have been a bit too old, yes, but her comedic acting would have bounced off really well from Eddie Murphy's comedy chops, whilst also bringing a degree of seriousness. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I, I think that one of the weirdest things is the, <laughs> the, the clear age gap between 
Phil and Rita. But it has to be there. It, that age gap is necessary does. for, yes, the questionable relationship, sadly, but it's also there because of disillusionment and because of the naivety and wide-eyed nature of Rita's character. Mm. The age really assists that dichotomy. And that's why when looking at actors that could do it now, if they were a remake now, I did think about that. <laughs> I kind of thought about Murray's journey through SNL and initially my, my brain went to Bill Hader um, because he's he's got a kind of face and demeanour that it's not the same as Murray's. It's not mm. this kind of semi-depressed, cynical okay. thing. But he does have this air of slight aggression. But if it were um, slightly kind of different, then, you know, the, the film would, would it would still work, but in a slightly different air. I think also from the American comedy side of things, Jason Mantzoukas... Um, could do it. Um, it would be, again, slightly different. When it comes to the character of Rita, it's not That's a bit easy. challenging. At the time, the, uh, according to some some stuff that we read, another figure... Another figure of American culture? Who was considered for playing the part was Tori Amos, um, who I adore. Um, uh, I, I think that she would have perhaps given... A sense of too much um, ethereality to the role. Yeah. I think it would have been yeah, fun, but I don't think it would have been it. the same because I think Andy McDowell plays this part. Yes, she's got a lot of grace and she's got a lot of optimism. But she is grounded. But she is grounded. She's quite practical, which I think that has to be there for her to do some of the stuff that she does. Like she, she's the one who comes up with actual suggestions for how to solve the problem, if there is a way of solving the problem. But in terms of a modern day recast for Rita, I went with Natalie Emmanuel um, of Game of Thrones fame. Oh, yes. Yeah, she played okay. Missande. Um, and I think that that role, uh, she is a British actress, but I think that that role gives her a certain amount of presence in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think this is very much something that needs to be set in America. I don't know. Whether, Even nowadays. Yeah. But I think that she's got such a, she's got such an optimistic air about her that she'd be able to play that role. It would be a different film in a lot of ways, but I think you could pretty much update the script slightly, but have that in a modern day context. But if, if they decided, because people are making remakes of things all the time, oh, completely. Um, if they decided to make a remake, that would be my pitch. Fascinating. All this talk about potential imaginary casting has made me a bit thirsty. Shall we take a quick break? Sure. And when we come back, we'll be talking more Groundhog Day and our own personal experiences with the film. So, I think it's time for us to actually move on to something which could be quite interesting to a lot of people, namely why you have seen the film before, namely what made you see the film before, but possibly more interesting, why the hell haven't I seen it before? Slash, mm. how have I avoided it? I mean, I'm certainly interested in how you managed to avoid it. <laughs> um, well... I actually did manage to avoid it for quite some time. I knew of it as a cultural artifact from when I was very young, but I, it wasn't something that I watched with my parents, for instance. Okay, okay. Um, one of my closest friends when I was younger, hmm. it's one of her favourite films. Ah. Um, and she asked me, did you want to watch Groundhog Day? I said, yeah, okay. I haven't seen it before. And she went, oh! <gasps> <laughs> because for her, very much in, in line with what Danny Rubin originally wanted for the film, it is a film that she watches with her dad, at least, every year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was kind of like, no, I've never seen it before. And, and she, she was astounded. 
Um, so we watched it and I was really impressed ever, ever since. I, I mean, I've seen it. That was the first time, I think, including the time that we've seen it. I've seen it four times now mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I've enjoyed it every time. Good. Um, Wonderful. And have you discovered new things every time? Well, I kind of referenced at the beginning that I, I think I've come away with slightly different thoughts every time. Okay. Um, okay. And it's one of those films which I think rewards rewatching because you notice new yeah. details and you, you kind of see new things. But I think that's a sign of a very good artwork or a very good art piece. Oh, completely, completely. Um, and I think it also depends on who you watch it with. Completely, yes. Um, and Seeing as you were this time in your friend's position, introducing it to someone else completely new true, to it. true, but this is the first time I've been watching it whilst making notes as well. Okay, yes. <laughs> that is a new sensation. This is a new sensation, though, which is going to be new for both of us, but yeah. Yes. Um, what, what, when, why, why did you avoid it i mean if there Mm. is a reason why you avoided it well i believe that as i mentioned before i knew the phrase groundhog day and how it entered popular consciousness therefore i thought that i didn't need to watch the source material so i guess younger me wasn't too interested in anything too philosophical or too cyclical i simply believed oh this means this cool gotcha so uh, just just a question i mean Mm. had you seen the poster for the film for instance when you were younger I don't believe I had. Okay. Maybe I'd seen bits of the trailer for it because it must have been played on TV at some point, possibly dubbed in Bulgarian, which was another point of um, distaste for me or displeasure for me. Mm-hmm. Because while I was growing up, I would usually prefer films in the original language with Bulgarian subtitles. I mean, yes. I, I definitely get the thing about wanting to see films in the language that they were originally in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that obviously because it's a film that's now 30 years old and has been through a heck of a lot of different phases perhaps there have been phases where it wasn't billed as a comedy film possibly billed as something a little more philosophical which it is perhaps Um, and maybe that i don't know i think when you look at the, Mm. the especially from the time the material that was used to advertise it the poster the probably the taglines the trailers of the time they were probably emphasizing the comedy kind of family feature nature of it especially with bill murray there yeah because it was a very family oriented year you know Mm -hmm. 1993 is a heck of a year in terms of the films that came out that year jurassic park oh wow yeah jurassic park was the biggest film probably Uh, But Free Willy as well, Mm -hmm. in terms of family. Mrs. Doubtfire, mentioned earlier. Amazing. Amazing Um, film. um, Last Action Hero, Indecent Proposal. Okay. We're getting into other things here, but Dazed and Confused, um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. But yeah, that year, a heck of a lot of big films came out, including on the more, much more serious side, we've got Philadelphia and Schindler's List. So it's a, it's a very big year for film. Mixed bag of films in terms of genres, but definitely important films. Oh, certainly. Within the general consciousness. Yeah. Yes, so I believe you do have a fair point when you say that it could have slipped Groundhog Day as a film under the radar and could have been billed as several different things. Mm, mm. I also do believe that I spoke about my knowledge about Steve Martin, how much he was a more prevalent part of my childhood and growing up. I think this also leads me down to why I know films such as Pretty Woman or My Best Friend's Wedding, which involved Julia Roberts a heck of a lot. I know them more so than something like this because they were more readily available on TV. And then when I started exploring films for my own, I went for stuff such as Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Mm, Breakfast mm, Club. mm. 
there's a heck of a lot of 80s inspired stuff in Groundhog Day because it, I, I think, as I said earlier, that it, it's a film that's got a lot of hangovers from the 80s. But let, let's get into some of, some of our more kind of um, in-depth thoughts on, on what we actually thought about the film. Yeah, I think that is, you know, that is one of the main things people come here yeah, to listen to. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to compare it to a film, for instance, like Bruce Almighty, which is kind mm, of similar. Yes. Um, except good. that Bruce Almighty is much more of a comedy film, I would yeah, say. Absolutely. Like hard and fast comedy. Um, but both of them are quite dissatisfied with jobs that I would argue aren't very labor intensive. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, this is a fun assignment. I would, I would find it fun to, I mean, punks are I'm sure it's cold. And you know it's cold in the in the town that they actually filmed it, which wasn't actually Punxsutawney. No, um, but which was in Illinois, not in Pennsylvania. I would argue that he doesn't have very much to complain about. He is like a well-known figure. Yeah, it's not a big prominent news station, but he's got like he's he's known, and maybe he's bored, but like he he's able to kind of do stuff that other people wouldn't be able to do because of his job. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he spends his whole time complaining and saying that everything's beneath him. And he shows contempt for the, st- the stuff that he's being asked to do. He's extremely sardonic. And yeah. he appears to give absolutely zero fucks. <laughs> but in actuality, he does care a whole lot. By the end of the film, at least. Well, yeah, he does. But I think that something, and this is where some context on Phil Connors would perhaps be useful. Yes. Something or, or a series of things have eroded any sense of joy that he has or any pride that he has in his work. And Bill Murray is exactly the right person. I mean, outside of the film, he was going through a divorce at this time. So probably that feeds into his performance being as as it is. Fatigued of life. Yeah, but his mix of this kind of sarcastic cynicism and diva-ishness make him easy to love to hate at the (laughs) beginning (laughs) of the film. A little bit of context as to this life before Puxatoni would have been extremely helpful. And I think being stuck in this loop is really a way of, yes, learning, growing, but it actually escaping a really downtrodden reality. It's true, but I think it's really fascinating that we spend almost all of our time in the film with Phil, but the people that we learn about in terms of the information that we get about the characters, almost none of it is about Phil mm-hmm. and his life outside of his work. We get a lot of background information on Rita. Yes. You know, the fact that she studied French poetry at school and he latches onto that. He 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 realizes what her favorite drink is and and then gets Uses one of it. those for himself, despite mm. the fact that he clearly doesn't like it. And we learn a heck of a lot about other people. We don't find out that much context about Phil. It also makes it makes the joke, which I think is a joke that he's called Phil and the groundhog is called Phil. It yes. makes the whole thing even funnier as Completely. an overarching joke and kind of bitter comment throughout the whole thing that like his life is tied to this groundhog. And even mm. though he goes through this massive transformation, he says at the end of the film, I want to live here. And it's like, you're never going to escape this fucking groundhog. <laughs> Neither the groundhog nor the sensibilities of what is little small town America, yeah. possibly. Yeah. And 
just watching the film, watching all of the different people depicted in the small city, in the small town even, really brought home to me how much of a banal existence they must lead. Maybe this could be seen as a metaphor for the states in the 90s, or maybe coming out of the 80s into the 90s, a little bit more inward-looking, really obsessed with their own culture, obsessed with their own position in the world as the leading economy, as the leading political power, as the leading producers of cultural landmarks, such mm. as this film. Mm. And I believe that this sort of entanglement in one's own seemingly mind-numbing or meaningless traditions, such as Groundhog Day, can cause such a commotion within a lot of the population that it makes them forget about everything else which is going on. Mm, and I think that, that actually, within the film, it connects to the fact that so little actually happens yes. on the day. And Precisely. it's amazing that this this film is taking place. And yes, okay, the focus is on Phil and particularly also on Rita, but mainly on Phil and what he does with all of this added time and all these time mm. loops that he's got. But so little actually happens on the day that you're kind of, it gets to this sense of the mind numbing. I mean, the first loop that he goes through without knowing that he's in a loop, it takes, I think, five to ten minutes maximum yeah. of film time. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like, nothing happens. <laughs> it's all setting the stage for what's about to happen, as we find out as the film goes along. But, like, the day itself, the Groundhog Day that's depicted, I mean, even the fact that the Groundhog t tells the people there that there's going to be a longer winter, you know, is it kind of foretells the fact that this is a really average, dull day, but it's made into something more special by the fact that Phil is there. He he definitely has changed into a better, more successful and and more optimistic person by the end of the film, and he delivers what I would say is a performance worthy of promotion. But hmm. then the last line of the film, "Let's move here." I mean, if he moves to Punxsutawney. And an ad lib from Murray at the end will rent to start with. I think that's it. But mm -hmm. he, he he's not going to advance in Punxsutawney because it's at this all. remote little place. And I think that I don't know if this was something that the filmmakers intended, but it does kind of feel like through this massive transformation to turn him into a better person, he is also settling for being less ambitious because his ambition mm. may be driving him to be this aggressively pessimistic kind of depressed person at the beginning but kind of reflexively at the end of the film is he settling for a life that is perhaps beneath what his talents could let him have i don't know i think it's an interesting one yeah quite possibly and it is a film which has stood the test of time and mm. as you said has gathered a cult following and is increasingly popular i guess even nowadays, with the musical by Tim Minchin. Um, actually, at the end, I believe there's a line which Phil states, namely, today is tomorrow, it happened. Yes. And getting a bit into our personal history, having been in a long-distance relationship for quite some time, that line really spoke to me on that level of the trepidation, the excitement of seeing someone or the passage of time actually coming to a meaningful, bringing you a meaningful result which you've been expecting, waiting for, longing for, for so long. Mm. In this sense, the salvation brought about by the, the power of love which has really helped Phil to change and to evolve into this less jerky character, mm. 
is really encapsulated by that line. Uh, yeah, no, I totally get that. And I think that it also links in with the pandemic. I mean, we mentioned mm. it earlier, you know, Completely. today is tomorrow. <laughs> how, how, how many of us, when locked down, felt the experience of the day seeming all the same, and then suddenly we were permitted to think differently. Today was today was today was today, and then it was tomorrow. And I think that that kind of, especially with that context, I think it's a good film for Gen Z, Gen Z, mm -hmm. um, because I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with life among Gen Z, which technically I'm a part of. And I think that, you know, this film is not, modern in a sense mm. but i think that the way that it combines really quite dark philosophical nihilistic themes universal they are universal but they're quite specific to bill murray's angsty character he's an angsty character and i think that the general angst and discomfort that gen z seem to feel mm -hmm. connects with that very well it's hilarious but it's also really dark when you think about the the absolute terror of living the same day again and again and again. Because in order to do <laughs> yes. what he does in the final loop, he has to have mm. done so much work. Exactly. Talking to all of these people. Helping. Working out how to help. Saving them. them. And it's it's this thing. I mean, I, I mm. spoke about it a bit earlier, but it is this kind of combination of British humour and, and general kind of depressedness with an American happy-go-lucky kind of vibe. And it mushes them together. And I don't think that's what the filmmakers intended. But I think you've hit the nail on the head pretty well there as to why the humour kind of works. It does, it does work, and it remains relevant. And as long as there are disaffected people, I think that they will be a particularly strong audience for mm. this film. Because it's not about disaffected but it kind of is at the same time because phil although he's not a young man he is disaffected and there's quite a lot of angst about him which i think is is natural to people of younger years the way that he even says like something along the lines of i am a god i i, I referenced yes. it earlier yes and it gets you into all sorts of kind of religious philosophies as well i mean he tries out buddhist stuff mm. he, he tries out that there's lots of stuff from different uh, religions there spiritualities yeah yeah and and he's he he says this thing about being a god because that's the conclusion that he's come to this is like it's it's close the self aggrandizement to the yeah and if you were in that situation i think maybe that is something you would think um yeah quite possibly and that really brings me into thinking about how the different stages of grief really feed into this film i mean you, you mentioning that model of, of the five stages of grief, the the writers did actually use that as one of the structures of the film. Wonderful. Um, Good. It's it's the Kubler-Ross model. By all reports, they did actually use it as one of mm. the models to base it on. And you're completely right. It It is, it's seen there in a lot of ways. I think that there is almost a sixth thing mm -hmm. that comes kind of after denial, but as the beginning stages of anger. Okay. Which is this kind of elation. Yeah. It's this persuading yourself that actually this is all fine. It, it's not that it's, it's just fine either. It's this elation that there's no consequences. Yes, precisely. Um, and you don't realise how dangerous that is. Um, and I think that overarching with anger and bargaining into mm. depression is this sense of Phil's that he's able to do anything he wants. He steals money. 
he he has meaningless sex with people who he doesn't even know and calls out Rita's name while he's having sex with, with this other woman. And he does all kinds of things which are really terrible things to do. And I think that that's something which, if you think about stages of grief, whether whatever you've lost, whether it's a person or whether it's it's a, a thing, a relationship, um, money. Uh, or you, you're coming to grips job. with the loss of a stage in your life. Yeah. You know, a new what, whatever you're grieving, one. suddenly there may come a point. And for, for a lot of people, I think there is. There's a sense that nothing matters. Mm. And so you then take this sense of like nothing matters to mean, oh, there are no consequences and I can do whatever the hell I want. And I think that that's, that's one of the most important parts of this film because we're shown just how damaging that is, not only to you yeah. as an individual, but to everybody else around you. Completely, yes. Um, it, the, the pothole, the famous pothole, which Ned Ryerson, that's a doozy that Ned Ryerson brilliantly, brilliantly played by uh, Stephen Tobolowsky. Yeah, when, when Phil sticks his foot down the pothole, that wasn't in the script. That was a pothole that was there you know, in the street of Woodstock, Illinois, and they just decided to keep it in. They just said, right, well, you put your foot down the pothole and get super wet. And, you know, in those kinds of weather conditions where it's super cold, um, apparently uh, Bill Murray was wearing, like, cling film and various layers on his legs so that he didn't get, like, frostbite or gangrene or something like that. Wow. Well, we're almost at the end of this episode, but do you know what it's time for? You guessed it, another quick break. Join us again when we return with some more impressions of the film and maybe more. I think we should fire off like a few of our favorite kind of notes. Notes and quotes? Yeah, notes and quotes. Notes and quotes. Um, so I love I've, that as a category name. I've got Andy's aggressive optimism. I think one of my more favorite quotes is from the very, very beginning. For your interest, hairdo. Mm. Just... The very deduction of a person down to their hair speaks volumes to me. And it's so Bill Murray. I mean, that line is really, it's really cutting, but really simple at the same time. The polka song. The polka, the infamous polka song. Infamous. <laughs> really reminded me of an insane asylum, specifically American Horror Story Asylum and some of the songs used in there. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got uh, lines like, I don't worry about anything. Mm. Um, I am a god, egocentric is your defining characteristic. Um, I have a big, huge note in here saying, run away, Andy McDowell, just say no. <laughs> I think that the, the the reference to Clint Eastwood as well, when he, he and, and one of the women that he manipulates go to the cinema and he's dressed like Clint Eastwood in mm. um, Good, Bad, yes. and Ugly, yes. is just hilarious. <laughs> Um, it's so over the top in the worst way possible for the character. Yeah. Maybe the real God uses tricks. Been around so long, he knows so much. That scene is just great. There are a lot of, like, big moments of feels in this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, is this what you do with eternity? Yeah, the piano and ice sculptures are fucking iconic, according to my notes. <laughs> um, and oh. Ned running away is probably the funniest bit of the whole film. When... Bill Murray mm -hmm. plays and hugs him. Yes. And Ned is forced to run away. And I, you know, I, I still, one of the great mysteries about the film, which I don't know, probably someone might know, but is Ned Ryerson, as a Actually, character, genuinely an old schoolmate of Phil Connors? Or is this just a strategy? Yeah, because I don't know. And maybe I'm being stupid, but... I, I've been duped as I well. I don't know. 
And uh, you've watched this film more more yeah, times than I, I have. I still don't know. We don't know, guys. We don't know. Please um, write in with your ideas. Yeah. Please. Is, are they genuinely old school mates? Bill Murray carries. Next uh, to, I mean, with lines such as, no matter what happens for the rest of my life, I'm happy now because I love you. That yeah. is I mean, it, it pulls at the heartstrings and, and the old man dying. Again, really tragic. Also, the jazzifying of um, the Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini. The piece of music that Phil starts to play when Andy McDowell, when Rita notices him, is a piece of Rachmaninoff piano music called Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini. Um, and he starts playing it normally, but then it gets jazzified with the band. And I think it's really beautiful, partly because I love that piece of music, but also because it's a piece of music where the same theme mm-hmm. gets repeated yes. Again and again and again with different variations on the same theme of music. So it works ridiculously well with, with this film. Everything. Well, now that you mentioned the piano, I think I can also mention the note that I have, which is Billy Joel Murray. Billy Joel Murray. Billy Joel Murray, yes. <laughs> I've said that the kiss fixes it, but earlier on we kind of discussed whether or not uh, it did. Yeah, I'm not um, really sure. Today is tomorrow, you're here, end of a very long day. <laughs> is there anything I can do for you today that, you know... Mm. I mean, yeah, okay, there's a feeling that it's maybe slightly rushed at the end, but I think that it needs to be there in that way, partly because I'm, I'm sure that... The studio, the, the production company, needed it to have that kind of yes. ending. Yes, yes. I think those are some excellent notes. And yes. those will lead us on very nicely to our next section, mm-hmm. which, as we've kind of noted upon in our introductory episode, we're both extremely obsessed with ranking and with lists. Yes, yes. And I think that some of the categories which we'll be ranking this film on are acting, cinematography, music, themes... One weird element of the film, and then an overall ranking. Okay, yeah, we can do that. So, should we start with the acting? Yeah, let's start with the acting. So, these are all out of 10. Mm-hmm. And I've personally given the acting a 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Firstly, because Andy McDowell, I think, is one of her debut roles, or one of her first roles. But what, no, she, she had actually been in stuff in the 80s. I think her breakthrough role had been in 89. Mm-hmm. Sex, Lies and Videotape in 1989 was her breakthrough. To me, Andy McDowell really shines in this film for the very limited time that she's in there. Mm. I wish she had more time. I genuinely wish she had a lot more time in this because she is really great. Her positivity, her naivety are really well communicated and act as a really wonderful foil to Phil. And Bill Murray just steals the show. You really expect it. You really know that he's going to be this jerkish, narcissistic, egotistical person who just really wants to, at one point, get out of the situation, at another point, stay in the whole situation, the time loop. He is just really, really likable, despite being an asshole. Mm -mm. That's really cool. I I actually agree. I think the acting is a 9 out of 10. Very similar reasoning behind it. I I think that both of them play the part so well. When it comes to cinematography, what would you give it? I would again give it a 9 out of 10 because the shots in this film are really beautiful. The blizzard shot, especially when they're in the car, when they're in the van, and they're about to turn back towards Puxatoni, I really find that to be a beautiful shot. And then anything which gives me a repeated nature of a setting, I'm just really thinking, okay, how often did they have to reuse shots? How often did they shoot this particular shot 
even though it's repeated for every single loop which we see. Mm. That really gets me thinking, how have they done this? Have they done this on a budget? Have they tried to cut corners? Have they tried to do something different every time? I think for me, it's a difficult film to rank cinematographically um, because I think it's quite a, well, it's a fantasy story, but it's quite down to earth. I'm very into art house cinematography and I enjoy it in mainstream films when I see stuff that really lingers on particular elements. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 for cinematography. Interesting. Um, because I think that there are things that they could have done that would have made it slightly more beautiful, mm -hmm. even back in the 90s and even on a little bit of a restricted budget. It's still very good and it works very, very well for, yes. the, for the story and for the film. Totally. Um, and maybe this reflects just the kind of things that I want out of a film. But yes, it's a 7 out of 10. We'll get into that when we watch some other <laughs> films. Yeah. Don't worry. Um, yeah, so then we're going on to music. 10 out of 10. Great choices yeah. for me. It's so wonderful. Even down to my mishearing of the Pennsylvania polka, Sonny and Cher, the addition of the song called uh, I'm Your Weatherman. Mm -hmm. And then even the background music is just really yeah. moving. The tone is correct. The I, tone I, is I correct. completely agree. I, I would also give the music, I, I mean, there's a note here, which is music is pitch perfect. Yeah. Um, I think that it gets to the kind of zaniness of the 80s film, but it updates it slightly and gets to the slightly more serious tone of Groundhog Day. Um, the guy who composed the music was a guy called George Fenton, mm. uh, who was an English composer. It gets to the mood without being overbearing, and I love the inclusion of the various songs. I, I mentioned the Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini by Rachmaninoff, mm. um, but I also think the Susie Stevens song, Take Me Round Again, um, it, the inclusion of Sonny and Cher, which wasn't Fenton's idea, it was Rubin's idea from the first draft. Mm. But it's just so genius. I think the, the music works so well. You can watch the film and not really notice the music that much, but that's part of the genius of it. Because yes, it actually completely. really helps the film along. I really enjoy the music. I think that the film is the 90s defined. I mean, mm. and, and society as it's developed since then defined but um, actually going from there the themes explored in this film yeah. that is another category which we have to give it a rank out of 10 again i would have to give this a 10 out of 10 for the exploration of all the different ideas not simply spirituality but as you said personal development narcissism yeah. the encapsulation of america at the time as this reflection of what they believed was their superiority mm. of the in the world I think it's genius. I agree. I would also give it a 10 because mm -hmm. I think it gets to so many, on so many different levels about America, about the human condition, about existentialism, about all kinds of different things. And yet it's done in a way where it's not overbearing, where you don't get confused. But I think that it is definitely still a family film. And I think mm. there's stuff there for people of all ages to enjoy, but also to provoke thoughts. So yeah, I think thematically it's 10 out of 10 and, and it, it's not up itself. You'd think that a film no. that's no. so philosophically rich would be quite up itself. It isn't. It's really clever the way that it does it. Mm. Yes. It is a very accessible film. In terms yeah. of philosophy, in terms of its themes, it is a very accessible very piece accessible. of media. Yeah. And then I think just because we're us, because we're a little bit quirky, we can pick one weird element from the film. Yeah. Okay, what's, Rank what's your weird element? My weird element is the work with ice and snow. Yeah. So the snowman, which uh, Phil 
creates, together with the ice sculptures and the building of the ice sculptures. And in the grand scheme of things, those are both ways in order to attract Rita, in order to attract a female character to get to like him. So that automatically brings them down in my appreciation. Mm -hmm. And I think I would give just those elements an 8 out of 10 because I appreciate the amount of time that it took Phil to learn how to do ice sculptures. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. But at the end of the day, it is simply to uphold a very heterosexual view of society as it was back then. Okay, interesting. I think for my weird element, it's not that weird, I guess, but it's it's the fact that this film has such an enduring question that comes out of it, which is something that you're thinking about whilst you're watching it, mm. and you think about long afterwards, and yep. there's no definitive answer, which is, nope. how long exactly is Phil Connors stuck in this loop? And there are so many different answers. You know, the minimum, I think, is about 10 years, and Ramis has revised it so that it's it's kind of like more than 30 years. One website has calculated that it must be 34 years. But, you know... If we think about it more, you go into kind of like exactly how many days, exactly how many hours it would have taken him to learn to do all of the things, to remember to do everything exactly yeah. without being able to write things down. Because if you write things down one day, there's no They're way that he would be able to keep it the next day. So it's all in his head. You know, it looks like it's only a couple of weeks if you follow the days. But I think that it could possibly be as much as thousands of years that mm. he's trapped in this loop. But there's no definitive answer, and I think that that's so good and so clever, and whether the filmmakers intended it that way or not. People are going to be asking that question for as long as the film remains, you know, as an artefact. And I think that as a weird and wonderful thing that the film does, I have to give that a 10, because it's yeah. it's such okay. an engaging, engrossing question yeah. about the film. Um and yeah, that, that's got to have a 10. And absolutely agree with you for yeah. your weird element. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that leads us on to the um, overall ranking of the film, which we'd give it. Yes. And for me, as a first-time viewer, my overall ranking for Groundhog Day is a 9 out of 10. Mm -hmm. With the comments which I wrote immediately after watching the film, heartfelt moments interspersed in a comedic tour de force. <laughs> yes. Which was far more than five words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a summary. <laughs> so you, could, you couldn't use that. No, 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 no. But I think that for me, I would also give it a nine out of ten. After watching it four times now, don't worry, I'm not always going to agree with Boris. That's not what this is about. I have to give it a nine out of ten. There are some small things that mean that it's not a ten out of ten film, mm. but it is... Like the ice sculptures? <laughs> I like the ice sculptures. I mean, it was the 90s, <laughs> everything was weird. Yeah. Um, there are a few small things that mean that I can't give it a 10 out of 10, but it is a really good film. It's a, it's a fantastic film. It, Absolutely. It, and it, as I say, it helped to define the 1990s mm. as a decade. And you can't say that about too many films. I would True. argue that it's probably the best film to come out of 1993, which is high praise among all the films that I wow. mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I've seen all of them. <laughs> of the ones that I mentioned earlier, I've seen all of those films. It's a wonderful film, and I would recommend everyone to see it again 
if you've yes, seen it before. Definitely. Um, or if you haven't seen it, I, I don't know what, I mean, if, if you're like me and you don't care about spoilers, congratulations. If you haven't seen the film and you've got to the end of this, you probably know it better than most people who have seen it. It's a fabulous film. Yeah, incredible. Um, Simply incredible. I think the very, very final things that we'd like to share with you are some trivia facts about the film. I mean, yes, we've been sharing facts and impressions and thoughts and opinions about the film, but, you know, this is just a special section we like to call trivia. <laughs> Let's see if we can quick fire it. Cool. I've, I've got one. It, it's kind of assumed uh, and it's remembered wrongly that the film was actually released on Groundhog Day in 1993 um, in, on February the 2nd. It wasn't. That, that's, that's a myth. Um, and it's one that I'm sure that the filmmakers would like people to actually think is true. Uh, the premiere actually happened on February the 4th, and it mm. wasn't widely released until February the 12th Oh wow! Um, in the US. So actually it missed, in terms of people actually being able to see it widely, it missed Groundhog Day by 10 days. Oh wow, that um, is truly funny. Um, actually, something regarding misconceptions about the film is another trivia fact that I have, which is namely that the Groundhog Ceremony is depicted as occurring in the center of town. And, but Gobbler's Knob, where it actually takes place in real life, is a rural wooded area about two miles outside of Punxsutawney. This is even more artistic freedom which the creators of the film allow themselves. Yep, I've got a, a, a fact about Fred, who is the man who is getting married and who there's various uh, difficulties with the marriage that mm. uh, Phil solves. He was played by uh, Michael Shannon, who, and it was Michael Shannon's first film oh, role. Wow. Uh, Michael Shannon, <laughs> you will know from Boardwalk Empire mm. as General Zod in the uh, in Man of Steel in in the 2013 Superman film with Henry Cavill, um, and more recently in Knives Out in the first Knives Out. Mm. Uh, he's a, he's Walt, a member of the, the Thrumby family. Oh, okay. Um, so I have actually seen him act. Yes, you have more seen than him just act. in yeah. one film. He's he's the father of the fascist kid in Knives uh-huh. Out. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Something else. Apparently, the Swedish title of the film translates as Monday the entire week. However, the movie does not specify what day of the week it is supposed to be, and Groundhog Day in 1993 was apparently on a Tuesday? Oh, well, there we are. It it won Best Original Screenplay at the BAFTAs, but so far as I know, that's the only major film award it won, which to me is a scandal. But then again, Mm. in a year like 1993, with such stiff competition, it kind of makes sense. Even winning just one. So I think I mentioned at the start, or at least the start of the film, the weather reporting scenes, how impressive I found those. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, those weren't in the initial cut. Um, Bill Murray and Andy McDowell had to go back, shoot them for the scenes to be re-edited in later into the whole film. Then the film scenes were not conceived until the editing process. Mm-hmm. I yeah. guess they just needed a really strong beginning to actually capture people in, hook them in, and entice them. And hopefully, you know, we've done something similar here with this first episode. Yes. I think one th- one thing that I will, I will mention is uh, that in Rubin's original script, um, not only was it going to be more obvious how much time had actually passed, because Phil was going to track every day that every loop that passed by reading a page of a book and towards the end of the film he was going to be like i've run out of books to show just how long the loops will have lasted but interestingly also in the original script um there was going to be a twist ending where phil confesses his love to rita uh, but then she rejects him and enters a loop of her own 
huh. as punishment, I guess, by the forces of Punk's attorney. I'm kind of glad that that didn't happen. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think we're reaching the the end, the, the bottom of our our fact spiral. Yeah. Um. But you but, know, oh, oh, Harold Ramis is actually acting in the film. Yes, um, true. Yeah, he ha- he's the doctor that sees Murray's character. Yeah, yeah. And I think on that fact of um, you know, people. Yeah, uh, on controlling Harold, their Harold Ramis, um, the late Harold Ramis, because he died in 2014. On on the note of Harold Ramis pulling a Alfred Hitchcock and being in his own film, um, I think that that might be a good place for us to round things off. Yeah, and you know, thank you for tuning into this first episode of Reencounters. We are so so grateful to you for you know listening to the end, listening to this stage, even listening on several different stages because this has been a very long episode. <laughs> yes, it's and been feature-length. Yeah, completely. I think that that's okay, though, for a first premiere episode. Yeah. For, for a podcast about films, it's okay for it to be feature-length. Precisely. Yeah, so thank you so much for tuning in. Um, for more content, you can head to our Instagram page, at Reencounters, where you'll get hints about what we're covering next, as well as engage with us more directly via comments and DMs, and maybe even find some more interesting tidbits uh, from both our minds and both our, how do I say this, inspirations <laughs> Yes, down to the films. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave you to unpick exactly what that means. Precisely. Um, but similarly, you could also email, email us uh, if you want to get in touch, and the email address is reencounterspodcast. That is R-E-E-N-C-O-U-N-T-E-R-S podcast at gmail.com. And please remember to leave a review, write a comment, share with your friends. Please give us the five stars. Please write the <laughs> reviews as to how incredible you found it. Or even if you think there is anything we can do better, we're always, always happy to hear your feedback. And, you know, films are always a conversation starter and people are always looking for new podcast recommendations. So we've got you covered on both those fronts. We hope you will be back soon for a brand new re Until then.